Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. These are little things that I like because, you know, we live in a time where everybody's a Bible critic. Everybody wants to challenge the existence of God and people want to always pit science against God and it's the world we live in. And I think it's good to just be able to have some of these little facts in your back pocket to just pull out and say, hey, well, think about this. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Amos chapters 1 through 5. Now here's Pastor Brian. Somebody recently said that it probably will not make any difference to people when you talk to them about God or justice or righteousness or those things until they have some sense of understanding that they are accountable to God. And again, this is where, this is where prayer is so important because the Holy Spirit, his role, is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What sin is, what righteousness is, and why judgment comes. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So as we think of the world that surrounds us and we think of how oblivious people are to those those spiritual facts, how can that change? Well, I think as we pray, as we ask the Lord, Lord, by your spirit, bring that conviction so that people begin to sense. I know how, how I became a Christian. The first step to me becoming a Christian was I began to sense the weight of my sin on me. I began to sense the guilt. I began to sense that there was a judgment for what I was doing. Nobody told me that. There was nobody pointing their finger at me, telling me, you're going to be judged because of that. But the Holy Spirit was doing that to me. And I remember, I, you know, I would be with my friends, we'd be partying and everything. And, you know, my friends would be like, man, you're such a bummer these days. You know, you're not any fun to hang out with anymore. You know, what's the matter with you? Come on. You know, enjoy the party. And I was like, I'd like to, but I just have this in the back of my mind that I'm adding to my judgment. And, and so it, that was that initial thing that started to move me in the direction. So when I heard the gospel, I was ready to receive the gospel. So... Lord, pour out your spirit in convicting power on on us, on the world. So as we finish up here, verse 5, he says, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, 
He touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. And now it says this in verse 6. So this is this is NIV translation. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the water of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. So he's already spoken about this um, calling for the waters of the sea and pouring them out over the face of the land. But verse six, he builds his lofty palace in the heavens. Now that that is more of an interpretation than an actual translation. And almost every new translation translates this passage like this. Now, a footnote in my Bible says that the meaning of the Hebrew for this phrase is uncertain. So there's a reason why there's a variety of different attempts to explain what it's saying. It literally says that he sets his steps in the sky or in the heavens, or the New King James translates it layers. Now, if it is he builds his lofty palace in the heavens, I mean, again, it doesn't say that. That's just trying to understand, well, what does it mean, the steps? What what is that talking about? But this is one of those places that I mentioned last time where I I think what we're actually getting here from Amos is we're getting insight into things that only God knows about. And we, we have these things, as I mentioned previously. We have, throughout Scripture, we have these statements or these references to things that at the time that they were stated, these truths, these facts, were known only to God. No one else knew these things. For example, and I I think I mentioned this previously, but Moses said, the life of all flesh is in the blood. It wasn't until the 1600s that that was actually discovered. But God, of course, knew it all the time. And so Moses wrote it in scripture. I I think we briefly talked about the paths in the sea. Remember, Psalm 8 verse 8 refers to the paths of the sea. There was a man who became known as the father of oceanography. His name was Matthew Fontaine Maury. And he read Psalm 8 verse 8. And it sparked in his mind that there must be rivers within the sea. And he's the one who discovered and charted out and mapped out what we call the, like the Gulf Stream or the shipping lanes, all these things. He discovered that there are rivers in the sea that are much more vast than any rivers on earth. And they uh, travel at a much greater speed than any river on earth. And the boundary is not sand or soil. The boundary is water, but the distinction is the temperature of the water. So in these currents, the water temperature is either hotter or colder 
it is not the same as the sea that it's running through and the two things never mix. So this guy in the 1800s, he discovers this and it completely changes the world of seafaring and navigation and things like that. But it was based on Psalm 8, verse 8. Now, Paul the Apostle, 2,000 years ago, he spoke of creation being subject to bondage. Everything that is, is in the process of decay. Now, today, if somebody with a scientific orientation was going to talk about that, they would talk about entropy or they would talk about the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics is everything is in the process of running down. Left to itself, it all degenerates. Paul said that 2,000 years ago, but it, it was 1850 before it was identified as an actual scientific reality. So now, this steps in heaven or layers in the sky, as the New King James puts it. Nobody knew until the 1800s that, that there is the troposphere, that's where we live, then there is the stratosphere, and that's where planes fly. Then there's the mesosphere, then there's the thermosphere, and then there's the exosphere. Nobody knew that. It was discovered by a Frenchman named Debor, a French meteorologist in the 1800s. And you know how they discovered this? They discovered this by going up in air balloons. And as they went higher and higher, they started noticing that the barometric pressure would change and all of these different things were taking place. And it took them, obviously, quite some time to figure out that there's not just the troposphere and the stratosphere, but then there's even things beyond that. But I think in the context, this is what is actually being said here. Not he builds his lofty palace in the heavens, but that he has put layers in the heavens. Because just like the thing that he says afterwards, this is something that is identifying God as the all-knowing one. And so then he goes on to speak about the water cycle or the hydrologic cycle as it is also called. This, the cycle of evaporation, condensation, precipitation. Again, it was in the 16th century that this, you know, people began to understand that water from the seas evaporates, it turns into clouds, and then it's taken and dropped on the earth, and the salt is, is extracted out of it when it's taken out of the sea because the salt is heavier, and then it waters the land, and then it flows back into the sea. And that was observable, but it wasn't until the 16th century that they began to really understand exactly what was taking place there. But here, what is Amos saying? He says the one who does this, and obviously the one who knows about it, is the Lord. So, 
these are little things that I like personally. That's why I'm sharing them with you. Because, you know, we live in a time where everybody's a Bible critic. Everybody wants to challenge the existence of God. And people want to always pit science against God. And it's the world we live in. And I think it's good to just be able to have some of these little facts in your back pocket to just pull out and say, hey, well, think about this. Here Moses says that the life of all flesh is in the blood. He said that 3,500 years ago. How did Moses know that? How come nobody else knew that until (laughs) a couple hundred years ago? So these are things, and I think even for us as believers, because we're not exempt from having our minds assailed about whether the scriptures are really the truth of, you know, whether is it really God's word? Is it really everything it claimed to be? Can I trust it? Is it accurate? Is it truthful? So these little things are just little reminders of the fact that this book is not of human origin, although humans played a part, but all scripture is breathed out by God. It's God's word. These things remind us of that. So, moving on. Surely, let's look at verse 8. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. He will destroy it. He's going on and just continuing to pronounce the judgment. Disaster is coming. Sinners are going to die. But then... Suddenly, as is often the case in the prophets, it doesn't end with that. It doesn't end with that. And with Israel, over and over again, God is pronouncing a judgment upon them, but he is also making a promise that he will not ultimately destroy them, that he will preserve them, and that he will give them a future. And when we read these prophecies, and of course, every time we've gone through the prophets, we've seen this. And let me just remind you again. But when we see these things, God is promising a future for Israel when they will be brought back into a covenantal relationship with him and they will remain in that covenant perpetually. There will never be a repeat of what's happened historically. Now, that obviously has never happened. Now, from the time of this uh, Assyrian captivity and then Judah went into the Babylonian captivity, there was a restoration. They came back to the land and they were in the land under you know, less than ideal circumstances, but they were there for quite some time. But then, as we've seen in our study of Daniel, I mean, they went back to the land under the Persian rule, and then the Greeks took over and ruled them, and 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 then eventually the Romans came and ruled them, and, and so on and so forth. So there's been these temporary restorations, but there's never been anything like a full restoration to a covenantal relationship with God where there's a a reconciliation to God and a a totally renewed blessing upon the land. And that is not even the case today. 
So even though they've gone back into the land, we're still not at that place that things will eventually go to, that things will ultimately go to. And so there is the promise here at the end of the restoration of Israel, like we see in all of the prophets. And so look what it says in verse 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. So there's going to be a restoration. Now, Peter or James, in Acts chapter 15, this passage is quoted. And as the Jews are trying to figure out, okay, they, they didn't really understand that the Gentiles were going to be brought in and made fellow heirs in this covenant. So they're trying to make sense of that. Because remember, basically the gospel had just been going to, to Jewish people, to the Samaritans, uh, but then it started going over to the Gentiles and, and Peter goes to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He shares the gospel. Cornelius's people come to faith. Peter goes back to Jerusalem. They're like, what are you doing? You went to the house of Gentiles. Hey, this is, you know, this is what God's doing. So finally in Acts 15, they all get together in a council in Jerusalem to try to make sense of this. Why? What's happening here with the Gentiles? And they draw on this passage to show that, notice, this says that all the nations that bear my name, this is indicating that the nations are going to be brought in to share in what he calls here the fallen tent of David that's going to be restored. So its walls are going to be rebuilt again. This is undoubtedly a reference to the temple. And so... Peter and James and these guys, as they're discussing this with this group, they're realizing themselves that the prophets foretold that God would not only restore the nation of Israel, but he would bring the Gentiles to participate in the covenant. And so that is what is promised here in these verses. And so the days are coming declares the Lord when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by one who is treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. So this description here, the reaper overtaken by the plowman, the planter overtaken by the one treading the grapes, it's just talking about the cycle of harvest, how it's going to be so fruitful that everybody's going to be kind of stepping on each other. You know, where normally you plant and then you have a long time that you have to wait and so forth. He's, he's just using this kind of language to describe this accelerated blessing that's going to come in the future. And this is something that we can sort of see as a it's, it's a bit of a picture of what we would call revival or, or awakening. 
where the normal process of the life of the church is one of plowing and then planting and watering and waiting and eventually harvesting and then over again, over again, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. But then all of a sudden at what seemed to be random times, everything changes. And in an, and, and just overnight, the process goes from planting to reaping. And the harvest is exponential in its fruit. That's what we call times of revival or times of awakening. And we've talked about this, but since this is what's in the text, we'll talk about it again for a second. <laughs> but this is, but again, this is, this is what we pray for. Lord, you know, do it again. And we don't know what God's going to do. Nobody does. I don't know that anybody back in the, the day of the Jesus people, I don't know that anybody could predict that that was going to happen, but it did happen. And if you take some time to kind of study these different moves of God throughout history and look at the various regions where these things happen, you know, there, there is a case that can be built that, that oftentimes these events will occur more than once in the same geographical regions. And so we can hope and pray. I, we're we're going to do the normal plowing and planting and watering and harvesting. That's what we do. But man, Lord, if we could just have one of those seasons where all of that was expedited and things can change overnight. That's the, the beauty of it all. So... Whether it does or not, we just keep doing what we're doing, but we'll see what the Lord does. And so he will bring back the exiles. They will rebuild the ruined cities, live in them, plant vineyards, drink their wine. They will make gardens, eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So that, that's the promise to the nation that he will, again in the future, he will plant them. And you can see what I said a minute ago. This has obviously never happened because they've been uprooted again and again and again. They've come back and it looks like they were planted, then they got uprooted again. So there, there will come a time. And of course, that, was, that will be when Jesus returns. It won't happen before that. Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. Hi, Pastor Brian here, and I've got a book that I want to offer to our listeners this month, and it's a book by Jared C. Wilson, and 
The book is entitled The Imperfect Disciple. And what a great book because all of us are that person. We are all really that imperfect disciple. But the subtitle is Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together. And I think so often we sort of feel that way. But what we need to know is that God is for us, He's with us, and He's going to help us. And He has promised us grace so that we ultimately can get our act together. So I think this is going to be really encouraging. So we'd love to get a copy out to you. Just request it here from Back to Basics, The Imperfect Disciple by Jared C. Wilson. Again, this month's resource is a book titled The Imperfect Disciple, Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together by Jared C. Wilson. You can order the book The Imperfect Disciple by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book, The Imperfect Disciple by Jared C. Wilson, to help you experience God's grace that has the power to transform anyone. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we continue our series with the book of Amos. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.